You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Christopher Coyne, and I am the Associate Director for the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. And today I am joined by Anya Shortland, who is a professor of political economy at King's College London. Uh, and uh, Anya's research focuses on self-governance and how people engage in and structure trades in a variety of markets where formal state institutions do not reliably offer uh, law and order. And today we're going to be talking about her fascinating book, Kidnap, Inside the Ransom Business, which was published by Oxford University Press. Uh, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for asking me. Um, I want to start with a very broad question. Uh, and, and what I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about is your kind of intellectual journey and your intellectual evolution. You have a, a, a very interdisciplinary background. Uh, the topic of this book and your research in general is very interdisciplinary. And so tell us how you got into this, where, where it kind of started, and, and how you ended up being interested in the ransom business. You're right. I've got an unusual background with a first degree in engineering and then a PhD in international relations. And then I was an economist for a number of years, and now I'm a political economist, which suits me much better. Um, to me, academia has always been about being able to answer the interesting questions, but increasingly about asking interesting questions. And things that really motivate me are puzzles. Things are, I think that's really odd. It's really odd that something works at all. Or I wonder how people do that. Things where I think, well, how would I make a contract with somebody I don't know? How would I make a contract with somebody I don't trust? Um, that I suspect the worst of. And that's what motivates me. And um, I'm just really lucky that I'm at an institution where they let me puzzle things out for myself, let me go out there, spend three, four, five years just watching, observing, asking stupid questions. <laughs> Because a lot of these problems have been solved in practice. Sure. There's no need for theorizing about it. I just need to see what people do. Right. right. But, but how did you end up studying kidnapping? How, how did you end up on this topic? I started with pirates. And I thought piracy was really interesting. And it was really well covered in the media. Um, because you couldn't really hide that uh, there was a major super tanker or uh, a ferry or um, uh, some other ship gone missing. And people always sort of, they're always really interested in the pirating. And I was really interested in well, how do you know, or how do you pay them a ransom? How do you know what the right ransom would be? And how do you know that the pirates will come off the boat afterwards? Um, and how can you tie up a multi-million dollar asset in plain view of the Somali coast if it's anarchic? So I was just looking at it from a completely different point of view. 
but I thought they were just the more interesting questions. Not, I mean, it's easy to kidnap somebody. It's relatively easy to take a boat hostage. But turning that into money is a much more difficult problem without being caught, without being apprehended. Right, and so turning to your book, which uh, this is a perfect segue, you know, you, you start right off the bat on, on page one saying that, you know, the trade in human lives is a well-established business in many, many areas of the world and practiced by criminals, re rebels, and terrorists alike. And so you have this ubiquitous market that, that covers many different parts of the world. And as you point out in the book, it operates actually really well. Uh, uh, you know, at first blush, you might think there's uh, a lot of violence, uh, a lot of uh, uh, death, uh, a lot of uh, uh, kind of failures in these markets because you have criminals, uh, rebels and so on engaged in, in on the various sides of the transaction. But as you point out in the book, in, in many, not in all, but in many cases, the, the market actually functions quite smoothly. Uh, and that's really the, the fascinating part for me is, is unpacking that. And of course, then you go on to, to kind of unpack why this extremely set of multifaceted overlapping and, and really tricky interactions operate so well. Yes. So that was one of the puzzles for me as well, that if you look at the newspaper, this is, you get one view of kidnap for ransom, which is it invariably ends in tears with murder, with people coming home utterly traumatized with fingers and ears missing. And on the other hand, you can walk into an insurance broker and get insurance for that. So again, that was one of those places where I thought, these two things don't really go together. If, you've, if you can buy insurance for this, they don't have a product unless people come home within a reasonable, reasonably short time completely intact. Right. It's, it's not a product if half the people die. <laughs> so, exactly. so I'm going to return to the, the insurance side of the market in a moment because it's fascinating in itself. But one of the really neat ways I think you, you approach this problem is you kind of unpack it from a variety of perspectives of, of the key actors that are involved in these uh, uh, transactions. And so you kind of start by talking about the, the market for kidnapping from the uh, perpetrator's point of view. And so talk a little bit about that. What kind of challenges does the perpetrator uh, face in both kind of designing and then carrying out a, a kidnapping? Yeah, the kidnapping is the easy bit. I always say, I could kidnap you. <laughs> it's not that difficult you know, to get someone somewhere. Um, the problem is the ransoming. How do I start a ransom negotiation without leaving a trail for the police? Um, where am I going to keep you? Oh, am I going to keep you in my grandpa's shed? Um, how long will I be able to keep you in my grandpa's shed without the neighbor knocking on the door? Um, how am I going to get you food? How many people do I need to guard you? And it becomes this massive logistical problem. And if you understand that that is the case, how desperate I might be to get rid of you, that should also be informing the bargaining strategy of, on the other side. Saying, so, well, well, we'll just see what you do. <laughs> And see if you're just not going to let Chris go. <laughs> so, so this is fascinating. So there, there's a variety of different kind of calculations that the perpetrator has to take into account when they're making their decisions, but they're doing so under 
highly imperfect information and, and under uncertainty. So how do they, are there any kind of general insights that you gleaned in terms of the answers to those type of questions, in terms of, you know, how do they decide where to house the hostage, how to determine the price, how to negotiate over ransom from the perpetrator's point of view? And, you know, the interesting thing, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this as well as, you, you know, one of the themes that runs throughout is this idea that, that the various actors are all acting rationally. They're all responding to incentives. They're all responding to costs and benefits. And really then the interesting thing is how they weigh those costs and benefits, how they gauge what those are. And so are there any kind of general inf insights that you can offer or that your research offers on that? Well, there are many business models in Kidnap for Ransom. So there are the... Uh, the one known as the phantom kidnap, where I just see somebody walk into a cinema and I know they're going to have their phone off for two hours and I try and extract some sort of concession within that period. It might be an express kidnap. Yeah? And I might just get, have the person in the back of my car. But I know I can't keep this going for a long time. So again, people that seem to be desperate to get rid of hostage then you should just let them drive to the next cash right. point but we see a lot of express kidnaps yeah it's a response to people saying okay well show me that you can hold this person for some period of time then you might have the sort of niger delta type kidnapping where they've got four or five days and yeah it's a hassle for businesses but if kidnaps are invariably peacefully resolved after four or five days for $10,000. Again, it's not worth putting a massive kind of police um, effort into stopping it. it. It just happens, and it's, it's kind of an equilibrium outcome. And then you get to the more cartel, mafia, rebel, insurgency-type kidnaps, or the Somali piracy one, where they really have time on their hands. So there are lots of different business models. And if it's quick, you're just not going to get very much money for it. Right. But if you get a lot of money for your hostage, you've <laughs> put a lot of effort into it. So in the end, if this is to be insurable, basically nobody can make super normal profits from this. So it's a, it's a, it's a competitive market then, over time at least. Where 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 there is entry and exit, where there are, are uh, uh, decisions being made on the margin, and ultimately the the profit margins are are normalized down to, to zero economic profit. Is that or or tendencies in that direction? Or? It's not. It's not a perfectly competitive sure. market um, because it just thrives on misinformation. Right. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, but yes, I mean, if people make super normal profits then what you'll find is a lot of kidnapping right. because people brag about the massive ransoms that they've made. And then you get the Somali-type problem. You know, people come home and say, we just got a million. <laughs> right. <laughs> or two or three or four. And then everyone out there thinks, well, why, why aren't we in this business? Yeah. So it's, it's about driving the ransoms down to a point where it's kind of not quite worth doing. Some people will still do it, but it's not as big a problem as it would be if nervous stakeholders made emotional responses to the demand for a ransom. Right. So it's, it's fascinating because the same logic that underpins the market process, the various pressures when 
there's profit opportunities. There's going to be alertness to those profit opportunities. Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, as you're pointing out, uh, you know those pressures over time can drive margins down such that uh, uh, you know the kidnapping can be reduced. And so that's a fascinating um, way to think about it, which is counterintuitive, I think, to most people, but it's it's very insightful. Uh, in chapter three of your book, you talked about the protector and, and the role of the protector, and you analyzed the protector from a rational choice perspective. And, uh, you know, the other real fascinating aspect of this, which I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, is this idea of governance and governance versus government. As I, as I mentioned at the outside when I was outset when I was introducing you, your research in general has this theme of looking at these successful interactions between people when they cannot turn to formal state institutions and mechanisms to enforce those exchanges. Um, and you're doing the same thing um, throughout this book as well. And so talk a little bit about what governance is in the broadest sense to, to how you think about it, but also how it, how, how it influences the relationships in this market and the, and the decisions of the protector. Yeah, so for any meaningful market activities and for any worthwhile life, you need to have security of the person and security of your property to, to, to some extent. It's not worth planting anything if it's just going to be taken away by marauding hordes. So I always think of, of bitter cassava as the, uh, as, 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 as the worst possible option. It's, it's a terrible plant. Um, it's, it's, a t it's a tuber. Um, it takes forever to dig up. Um, you then have to pound it, then you have to water it, and then you have to pound it again. And after about 20 hours of back-breaking labor, you can make yourself a bowl of stodge. And it fills your stomach, but it kind of poisons you as well. It's the most horrible food that you can think of. And yet, that's what you plant if you have no security. Because even if somebody slashes and burns it, the tuber is safe. And it's not even worth stealing the tubers because you still have like 12 hours of work to do before it turns into right. a meal. You know, so that is the subsistence option if you don't have security. And it's not nice. So it always makes sense for somebody to say, I will offer you security. Have some chickens. Grow something nice. And then we'll share whatever you have. And so this is the idea of protection. Somebody within the community says, have a field. I will protect that field for you. So the protector is somebody who can then offer protection to many people. And effectively, he'll tax people for what they do. Yeah? Ideally, it would be a government that would be democratically elected, and the taxes would be, would be very affordable for everyone. But it can be privately provided. And it will be privately provided if there is, if there is no government. Uh, so generally, we don't see ungoverned territory. We'll have somebody who, who says, Look, I will make life easier and better for you by protecting your output. And the better a protector is at protecting, the more output there is, and the richer the protector can become. But they're not going to take everything away because they want the economic activity. So it's, it's a theory of state formation from the bottom up. And if you're really good at governing a territory, you can be become a king with a huge castle and everything will be gold, etc. 
So that's protection theory. <laughs> so how does that work with kidnap for ransom? Well, as a, kid, as a protector, I obviously have the opportunity to kidnap anybody within my area. But it's not a very efficient way of going about business because if I want to attract foreign tradesmen, if I want to attract foreign investment, etc., I want these people to be happy in my territory and do business. So I'd rather not kidnap them. I'd rather they paid me a protection fee and then they can enrich my territory in their particular way. So I, tr I save myself the trouble of kidnapping and they save themselves the trouble of being kidnapped and they just pay an informal tax to me and that's, that's the end of the story. So rather than engaging in the kidnapping relationship, is how do I make a contract with whoever is the local protector so that my people that I send into the field for delivering aid or for digging a well or for reporting or for tourism or whatever, that they don't get hassled. But yeah, we're not that good at shaping contracts with the underworld and we might need help and uh, kidnap insurance is one way of accessing the help that we need for shaping those underworld contracts. So that's, that's fascinating, and it then leads us into this discussion you have in the, in the middle of the book, which um, you know, I, I don't want to pick a favorite part because I, I was the page turner, which is um, a wonderful thing to say about an academic book. You know, read, your book reads like, a, in addition to, to, to having wonderful intellectual content, you are fascinated by it as you're reading it because it's kind of it's like full a of stories. Yeah, it's so. like a mystery combined with you know uh, 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 violence and peaceful endings all combined to one and lots of happy endings. Yeah, happy it is. It is. So, um, but let's talk about ransom insurance and you know you talk a, a bunch about Lloyd's in the book uh, and so I thought it would be interesting if you could discuss a little bit about how that is structured and how it operates. And, and as part of that, I don't want to limit the conversation to this, but you know the, the standard kind of problems with insurance products, which you talk about in here, things like adverse selection, moral hazard, and so on, you point out that there are mechanisms that have evolved to overcome those issues and, and to allow this market to operate uh, uh, relatively effectively. And so uh, uh, please tell us a little bit about that now we're, now we're looking at it from the insurance uh, perspective or the insurer's perspective. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So the insurance perspective is a really interesting one here. Um, I'm looking specifically at transnational kidnaps. Um, if you're talking about local on local kidnaps, it's basically a repeated interaction where people get kidnapped by the same people over time and it's a reputation building mechanism and about 90% of local and local kidnaps get peacefully resolved. So that's pretty good. With kidnap for ransom insurance, you don't have, well, if, if, if you look at transnational kidnaps, you don't have that repeated interaction. There's just a series of really troublesome one-off interactions because you don't know who's kidnapped your family member, you have no idea um, what their reputation is, etc. What kidnap insurance does 
is it turns all of these troublesome one-off interaction into a repeated game. So for the family or for the firm, it's a one-off. But for the insurance world, it's not a one-off. It is part of a repeated game, and people can create um, reputations because of the information flow that needs to happen within the insurance world. If this was a completely competitive market, then you wouldn't get that information flow. If it's a monopoly insurer, then you would have all the problems that are associated with monopolies. So the solution that we have for this problem is really fascinating. So there are about 20 insurance companies that provide this kind of cover, and they compete amongst each other. But they're also all part of a club, which is called Lloyds of London. And within the club, they can exchange information confidentially. And while each of the companies makes their own decision with respect to their own cases, there are also very strong norms and processes that the club mandates on how you resolve these cases. And if you don't do it according to the way the club does, then you're out of the club. So it's a really interesting, very elegant, and very effective way of, of, of governing this market. You, know, you have somebody creating rules for how the club deals with things, but then you let people get on with making their own decisions. And um, as so often with these brilliantly design system, you turn out, it turns out there is no designer, it's people competing as evolutionary competitions and people making mistakes and people catapulting themselves out of the market. <laughs> people have got a lot of skin in the game and if they make mistakes, then they make losses and if they make losses, they either fix it or they decide that they're going to show something different. So this is uh, this is fascinating. Let me ask you a couple clarifying questions, um, which which I, I think are very interesting. Number one, wouldn't the existence of kidnap insurance incentivize people to kidnap more, or is there some something that the insurers do in order to overcome that problem? Yeah. So generally, kidnap insurance is not bought by you but it's bought on your behalf and without your knowledge. So you might be told explicitly that you're not insured, or you might be insured for something, but not for the ransom. Yeah, so there some companies choose not to insure ransoms, but they might insure for the know-how of how to get people back. So you might you might be told, or you would be told probably, that you don't have insurance, or hopefully you don't ask. Yeah, so if you're out in the field as a researcher, you would assume that you don't have insurance. And the point of that is that if you get kidnapped, you're going to put your wife on the phone rather than your university, which would be more money that could be squeezed out of you. Or indeed, an insurance company, which make open a whole new box of possibilities uh, for, 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 for for the kidnapper. Yeah. So, as far as the um, 
kidnappers are concerned, they're always unlucky and they've always got someone without insurance, um, unless they get the CEO of a company. But that's such a hard target, it's probably not worth doing in the first right. place. <laughs> yeah. So um, with insurance comes a whole host of, um, of uh, advice. You, you'll be connected to, to, to an app that tells you, don't go here, don't go there, um, stay at this hotel, use this car, travel with this taxi company, um, don't go and visit this market. You invalidate your insurance if you do that kind of thing. And, and all that guidance is provided by the insurance provider? Um, well, not by the insurers themselves. There would be a uh, security consulting oh, like company specialist. that specializes okay. exactly on that. Yeah, so depending on where you go, the advice gets more and more prescriptive. And if you go to Mali for gold prospecting, be very hands-on advice. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you're just going to Mexico, then yeah, you, still, you still get advice. Yeah? And, it's, and it's, it's, it's good common sense advice. It just makes it that little bit more difficult to kidnap people who, who, who are insured. And um, there's this brilliant paper by a Cho, it's called Not Just the Rich, and it shows exactly the response of, um, of kidnappers to the pressures that well-resourced companies and people and communities bring to prevent kidnapping and make it really uncomfortable for kidnappers. And that's why in Mexico it's just gone down and down the income scale. And now it's teachers and nursery assistants and dentists who've got the problem, mm -hmm. not the people who are, who, who, are, who are able to take the right precautions. So as always, the plan A for any insurance is it doesn't happen. And basically, it doesn't happen. You know, the, the resolution, which fascinates me and other people, a few hundred cases a year. Right. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are at risk rarely happens. That's fascinating. And so that, for that same reason, that would also, I guess, overcome the moral hazard problem, too. If I don't know I'm insured, Absolutely. as you were saying, oftentimes people don't even know they're insured. Yeah. The moral hazard problem, I don't think, is that great as far as getting kidnapped is concerned because it's understood that it's not going to be fun. Right. So <laughs> it's a bit like health insurance. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to break the leg. Moral Moral hazard comes much more of how generous am I prepared to be with my ransom, right. knowing that somebody else pays it. Yeah? If I think it's my family scraping together the very last penny, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and discourage the kidnappers from pushing too hard. Whereas if I know I'm insured for a million, <laughs> come on, guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> What's stopping you? <laughs> <laughs> and and so that's one that's one interesting facet of this. And then the other then is how do how do the insurers deal with the adverse selection issue? The idea that, that people that are going to tend to seek the insurance are those that are more likely to put themselves or be in a situation where where they are at the potential for Well, you have no right to have kidnapped for ransom insurance. So if you're planning to do something stupid, they just tell you it's not insurable. So do they collect, how do, how do they, but, but what about the normal problem insurers face up with um, asymmetric information? Yeah, do, so do if do you want to do something out in Mali, you yep. tell them exactly what you're planning to do. 
and well, you tell your broker what, exactly what you're planning to do. And they go into the Lloyd's underwriting room and they see if somebody wants to insure you. And somebody might say, okay, we'll insure you, but the premium is for prohibitively high. Or they say, well, if you go with such and such a company, then we might be able to insure it. And this is what we would charge you for that. So they can be quite prescriptive about what they let people do. But some people, I've got Jerry van Dyke, um, the journalist who wanted to investigate the background of his own kidnapping and the uh, Afghan, uh, Pakistani um, uh, tribal borderlands. And he goes to every broker and says, we can't get insurance. Well, yeah, because <laughs> 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 it's not a good idea. <laughs> so you have these... So, so really, then, when you're applying for the insurance and considering it, obviously the incentive is for the ins the person doing the insuring to gather information. Just like if you bought life insurance, they'd want to know about exactly. various li lifestyle exactly. choices, and um, and so they're trying yeah. to gather. And it would it would come with a sensible risk management right. plan. Right. Okay. And the risk management plan, again, is the way to shape the incentives of the protector. So if I say, yes, you can go there, but you stay at such and such a hotel, you, you use this travel company, um, you'll be using this particular road, <laughs> you're going to pay the toll on this road. It's a way of getting the money to the right people right. without making it obvious that it's a protection contract. So it's fascinating because, it, and again, it varies from case to case, but in some of these, the level of micro detail, as you were saying, the hotel, the roads and so on are specified in such a manner that it's uh, all aimed at minimizing the risk of kidnapping. Absolutely. It minimizes the risk of kidnapping and it maximizes the benefit to the exactly. protector of minimizing the risk right. of kidnapping. Right. Yeah, so you're working on both sides. You're stopping people from doing silly things and you're making them do things that will broadly work for the community in which the, uh, in which the economic activity takes place. The other thing about shaping those protection contracts is that the insurers can act as a group and say, we're going to pull everybody from this oil field. Yeah? So you're not negotiating on a one-by-one -one basis, but you're negotiating across many very highly powered firms who can decide to either locate or not. Um, in a particular reason, you, uh, in a particular territory, you, you can say, well, we're just not going to be able to insure travel companies for your region anymore. Right. That'll be the end of that. Yeah? So it's massive power vis-a-vis -vis a protector who's interested in maximizing their income from their territory. If you tell everyone to stop going, they better sort out the protection arrangements. I want to return to something you had mentioned earlier in our conversation. Um, we talked a little bit about price pricing um, and, and, and the formation of prices, and I want to talk about that in a little more detail because um, you, you have this wonderful discussion about halfway through the book on, on this um, price formation and anarchic bargaining situations, the title of the section, which is, is wonderful because, you know, again, you, you have this vision of, of kind of there, there's no top-down order. Uh, um, kind of create the price, but it forms, it emerges. And so you're going through the process that through which it emerges, which is, is fascinating. And so as you point out here, the first thing that you need, the, 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 that is necessary is to 
make clear that the hostage is alive. And then assuming that, then you move on to the bargaining portion. You talk uh, in here a little bit. Uh, um, uh, and you have to make sure you talk to the right person. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Say more about that when yeah. you say talk to the right person. What, yeah. what, what do you mean? Well, a live hostage is good, yep. but you need to be talking to the person who can release that right. rather than some random guy who knows that there is a live hostage somewhere. So, and how do you how do they ensure that? How, what's the what's the credibility there, or the mechanism for ensuring credibility? Well, ideally, you talk to the hostage, and whoever can put the hostage on the phone <laughs> clearly has control of them. Right. Yeah, but it's very often that people come in, they've seen something, and they try to set themselves as middlemen. So you need to make sure you're, you're, you're talking to the people who, who actually have control of the hostage. So then talk a little bit about this bargaining process. How do the parties, there's some range uh, we can think of. It's not, it's not a single price. How do they arrive at, a, a, at a, a mutually agreed upon price? How do they divide up the, the surplus and, and, and figure this out? Of course, in any kind of bargain, you don't want to, uh, uh, either show your hand or, or kind of push too hard to the, to the extent that the, the agreement never gets off the ground or, or unravels. And so how do, you, how do the parties avoid that and strike a mutually beneficial price? Well, the first thing is to say that you are prepared to negotiate and that there is a price and there will be a commercial resolution because that protects the hostage. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely central. If they don't have any value, then you might well lose them. So put that much on the table that there will be a resolution. Then the next question is, how does this look like from the opposition's point of view, from the kidnapper's point of view? At what point would the kidnapper release? Well, the kidnapper will release at the point where it costs them more to hold the hostage than they get for that period. So. You've got to make sure that you don't give a lot more for an additional week that they hold the hostage than, um, than it costs them. From the insurer's point of view, as I said, the really important thing is that there must not be any supernormal profit. So if you think somebody is only going to keep the hostage for an afternoon, then the most they should be able to get out of that is whatever is available from a cash point. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the bottom line. Yeah. Um, you only really engage in a meaningful conversation, really squeezing people dry, if somebody has the criminal capital, the social capital, to keep hostages for however long it takes. And that's really very rare. But even in that case, it's about making sure that you don't offer too much and that you offer it in decreasing increments. Yeah, you signal a curve. And there is generally, because these things happen over and over again, some sort of focal point, some sort of precedent. So you, you, you get to that focal point, but in decreasing increments, so that every point kidnapper makes that decision, is it worth for the next increment to incur all the costs that I have in terms of guarding the hostage, in terms of feeding the hostage, in terms of the risk of detection, how close are the police, etc. 
And you try and make them as nervous as possible, of course. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But they need to make that trade-off, and if they decide to keep going for another week, and then you say, well, the next increment's going to be less than this one. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, a sort of a curve that eventually convinces the kidnapper that there isn't any more to get. And as you point whatever they say, whatever they threaten. Right, right. And and as you point out, both beginning of the book and then throughout in in, in, in several places, it works really well. Am I remembering correctly that the number of uh, was it ninety seven or ninety seven point five percent yeah, of hostages right. come home alive? Right. Yes. And, and that's amazing, right? Them, the vast majority of them in a very short time. That that that, that must have struck you. When you I know, first, right? but otherwise you don't have a product. Yeah, yeah right. That's you, what's you fascinating about this. You can't fulfill your duty of care towards your employees if 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 they rot in hell for <laughs> years on end and half of them don't come back. So you've got to make it work well enough for people to buy your product. You m it must work badly enough for the kidnappers not to incentivize the kidnappers. Right. And this is this seems it's not just work well enough. I mean, this works really, really well. I mean, I that, know, that and you end up with a strangely ethical solution to a massive moral dilemma, which is, am I ever morally justified in giving money to a criminal to save the life of somebody else? Right. Because what are they going to do with the money? They're they're going to inflict misery on other people, and they're going to invest it in crime. They're going to invest it in insurgency. They're going to immiserate others. So if you hand over millions to somebody to save your loved one, then you're making a really terrible mistake in a way. And that's something that you've got to live with. But the insurance solution of, of, of saying, okay, yes, we will bring people home safely, but there is only a normal profit. They're going to cover their costs and no more. As was the only ethical answer that I've come up with to, to, to this massive moral dilemma, and it's being delivered by the market. Right, and that's, that's a, f a fascinating point because it, it shows the power of the economic way of thinking and economic analysis for informing solutions to exactly the type of moral and ethical problems that you just raised. I mean, Yes, and, and, and governments where we think all the moral an ethical power should lie and uh, handing over vastly greater sums of money to horrendously dangerous organizations to retrieve their citizens right compared to what insurers do with uh, very similar um, organizations but under a completely different scheme of, of, of incentives. And yeah, if, if ransoms go up by an order of magnitude or two, two when you hand over to government officials, then you think something's wrong here. Right. I want to shift now to talking about, even though it's a, a relatively small number in, in the overall um, number of kidnappings, w when kidnappings go wrong, which you talk about yeah. towards the end of the book. And um, you, ha you have a chapter, um, and it's stated as a question, the title, Why Do Hostages Die? And so talk a little bit about that. Why, why do hostages die? Again, given that it's a relatively small number of them, but it still happens. And so what kind of things can go wrong so that the peaceful resolution, uh, for whatever reason, doesn't happen? 
So if we're looking at insured kidnapped for ransom, it's very, rare, very rare that it happens. And they almost never get murdered. So murder isn't part of this. So some hostages simply don't live long enough for the uh, resolution, the commercial resolution to take place. People die of pre-existing conditions. Or people try and run away. Or people aggravate their captors. So um, I sometimes worried about alpha males. And um, if you get the uh, training for a potential kidnap, it basically just t tells you to sit tight and wait for things to happen. Um, something will happen. Something good will happen. Just don't do anything. <laughs> so where kidnaps go wrong is uh, where you don't have that influence of this highly um, professionalized uh, form of hostage negotiation through crisis responders, where you put nervous families and nervous bureaucrats um, on the phone and start negotiating with, 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 without a firm price in mind. So. How do things go wrong? Things go wrong when people react emotionally to a threat. So, of course, if your child or your, your husband or your wife is just screaming in pain, you want to do anything to make that particular situation stop. However, if you make it stop by throwing money at the problem, you've rewarded bad behavior. And that bad behavior will be escalated. Anyone who's had children knows that if you reward bad behavior, <laughs> you're going to see more of it. Yeah, so by giving in to a threat, you can just plan for the next one, and the next one is going to be worse because they're going to try and squeeze more and more out of you. Whereas if you take a step back and say, well, we're not going to reward this kind of behavior, in fact, we're going to disincentivize it by saying we're not going to talk to you while you're doing this kind of thing. And put the phone down, or just say, look, this is, we can't make any decisions anyway. Just stop it, and we'll get back to you in two days' time. That'll cool things off. Yeah? But it's really, really difficult to do that if you don't have somebody by your side who said, we've seen this thousands of times, we always get a cut-off ear threat at this stage in the negotiation, just ignore it, just move on. If you don't have that charismatic person at your side, you're more likely to give in. And then, unfortunately, with, with governments, they tend to negotiate not on a one-on-one one, one -on -one basis, but they tend to um, negotiate over multiple hostages at the same time. And then you get the really unfortunate situations, which we've seen over and over again, where the kidnappers realize that by killing one hostage, they can drive up the price of the other hostages. Yeah. So if you have an American hostage, and a French hostage, and an Italian hostage, and a Canadian hostage, you know that the French and the Italians get really, really nervous when you start killing people. So you kill the two cheap hostages. and the money that you make, the additional money that you make on the French and Italian hostage, more than offsets and compensates for any money that you would have made. And that's when people die. So this is fascinating because at first blush, many people would, would probably say, well, no, you need 
government negotiators, you need government involvement in order to, to overcome these issues in order to negotiate the release of hostages and so on. And what your study shows is that not always, but oftentimes when government gets involved, they kind of muddy up the otherwise functioning market. They overpay or they create perverse incentives or they not just create perverse incentives, they, they can lead to conditions which leads to people's death. Absolutely. And so yeah, I mean, once you've got a government official on the phone, it's really, really difficult to demonstrate a budget constraint. Right. Yeah, negotiating with somebody's uncle, you can understand that there's only so much that a middle-class family will be able to pay. But why is three million all that the Italian government might be able to pay? I mean, exactly. why not five and why not eight and why not ten? I mean, it's just... There's just no obvious reason for them to stop at any particular point. Um, secondly, for the politician, for the bureaucrat, it's all about finishing it as fast as possible. They're hoping that the next problem is going to be with a Swiss hostage or a German <laughs> hostage. Or, uh, so they're not thinking about this as a repeated game where they end up reaping the whirlwind that they're sowing but they're just thinking, I want this off my desk now. So rather than what the private sector does, which is this disruptive bargaining, saying, well, you take your time, knowing that time is problematic for the opposition. If, if you're the one that, that's pressing for a resolution, then you're in a much worse position. And then third thing, it's all about incentives. If you're a professional hostage negotiator, your career depends on cheap, clean, and ultimately swift resolution. Not less so if you're a, a, a bureaucrat. Um. So then, building off of this, if someone someone asked you, what are the policy implications of this for kidnapping? What is this? What's kind of broad advice? And I, I realize, you know, a lot of this is context specific, how it manifests itself. Nonetheless. Given these insights that you've uh, kind of pulled together um, in, in your study, what, what are the policy implications? Well, I very much go against that narrative that you often find in the media that insurers are somehow in cahoots with the kidnappers, and it's because of insurance that we have kidnapping. So I would invite people to look at this with a fresh eye and uh, see what insurers have managed to do in terms of stabilizing kidnappings in the first place, but also in terms of resolving them for prices that don't immiserate countless people um, in the area of the organizations or groups that have just been given um, uh, a ransom. And secondly, I'm really concerned about um, the uh, ban on private resolutions and insurance for terrorist groups because as soon as you classify a group as a terrorist organization, all the providers, all the private sector pulls out because it's no longer legal for them to facilitate the payment of a ransom. So you put the government officials into the driving seat, and then 
the government either says, we're not going to negotiate, in which case the hostages will probably get it in the neck, or the government official says, well, how much do you want? So, Which then leads back to what you were saying earlier about overpaying, exactly. you know, wanting off their plate and so on. Exactly. So I'm really worried about that legislation. Um, I think it's counterproductive because you end up paying more money for hostages, make incentivize the kidnapping of hostages, and unfortunately also incentivize the killing of hostages that you kidnap. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going against uh, that kind of policy. Yeah, and that, that's a, again, that I think that would be counterintuitive to most, most people upon first hearing it, but in the context of, of your overall analysis and, and, and the points you've raised in our discussion, it makes perfect sense in terms of um, how a, a policy that on the face of it, in this case the ban, that, that sounds good, like you, know, you shouldn't negotiate with terrorists, Yes, Sounds but there is no political mileage in abandoning your citizens exactly, either. Exactly, exactly. So it looks good, but there are not very many governments that can go to parents and, and say, well, tough, you know, your, your son's out there. You know, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't work politically. Right. So unless you can keep your promises, that kind of threat is just not credible. Sure. The final kind of uh, talking point I have here, it's at the end of the book, in the last few pages, in the, in the section, in the chapter called Debrief, and then you're reflecting on private governance. And I just want to read a few lines, if you'll bear with me, because I, I think it captures um, the importance of what you're doing here um, in, in a, for economics in a, in a very broad sense and let me let me read it and I hopefully I'll become clear and then we can discuss it when I first studied economics I was taught that markets work well if there's perfect competition perfect information and there are no externalities or public goods problems I learned that if these conditions are not met government should intervene to correct the market failure or directly supply the goods that the market fails to deliver the market for hostages and the market for kidnap insurance turn this textbook wisdom on its head these markets work only because there's a high degree of market concentration and crucial information is with, withheld from key market participants. Talk a little bit about that because it's a, it's a fascinating insight and I think it really sums up the importance of what you're doing here, not and, and here in this book, but also in your work in general um, because um, you, you're really making an, import, an important point about assumptions of models on the blackboard or in textbooks, as you pointed out, versus in the actual world, but also what makes markets work and, and what makes them operate. And so say a little bit about this. Indeed. So, yeah, we always want competition. And competition is, is, is a wonderful thing to, 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 to stimulate innovation and, 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 and to, to drive prices down. Um, however, what I see in this particular case is, is limited competition um, within a club. And the club needs to make some money. Because if the club doesn't make any money, then being kicked out of the club ceases to be a sanction. So the club gives us the benefits of competition. So people within the club compete. But they don't compete right against the margin where it's really not quite worth doing what they're doing. So they, they, they earn a little bit extra 
for being club members. So I thought that was a really wonderfully um, elegant solution to, 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 to the problem of how can I get discipline, rules, without monopolization or, or, or the state. Um, as far as imperfect information is concerned, I definitely want to keep the kidnappers from extracting absolutely everything there is um, from families because I don't have any confidence in the kind of investments that they make with that money. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, how can, you, how can you put your best foot forward and try and keep them in the dark about the background of each case? as much as possible to drive drive down the prices. And yes, I'm very, very worried about government stepping in to ensure things that the market won't provide in this case because you end up sending people into territories where it's very, very dangerous for them to be. If you stop them from going, eventually people will sort out their protection arrangements. But if governments say, yeah, you go, you go hiking in the tribal borderlands, that's fine, we'll get you out you're sending completely the wrong messages to everyone and, and people will get hurt. Right. So shifting away from, from this book, tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. What are your current projects or, or future projects? So I'm going away from human hostages into different type of hostage situations. Um, I'm looking at the art market. I'm looking at the retrieval of stolen art. How do you get things back um, from the economic underworld? Um, and I'm interested in the way that property rights are enforced um, in conditions where states are often really not that bothered about enforcing them. So in the art market, you have um, this general attitude of governments it's a luxury problem uh, if your art is stolen if, 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 you've, if you've got 30 million for a picasso to put in your bedroom and it goes missing it's kind of tough sure <laughs> tough luck huh? um with drugs and uh and, and knife crime and gun crime etc it's, it's, it's not a police priority so i'm just really interested again in special risk insurance, how, how do you make that kind of market insurable, given that the state isn't really going to help you very much with either the, uh, the resolution of, of, of art crime or the protection of people's property anymore? And I, and I take it from your comments that a, a robust market has emerged to help people. Again, we see that. a lot of private enforcement and, and really interesting solutions for making stolen art unsaleable and then for retrieving it from the underworld saying well you can't sell it what are you going to do with it so just as the previous hostage situations the former owner is your best bet so what are you going to do sure well that's that's wonderful i look forward to to reading it uh your work on that uh, and uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And, and again, uh, Anya's book is, is Kidnap Inside the Ransom Business with Oxford University Press. Uh, it's a, it's a, a combination of, of truly wonderful writing, but with um, very rigorous 
uh, academic uh, and interdisciplinary engagement. And so uh, it's highly recommended. And, uh, and thank you very much for speaking with me today. Wow. Thank you so much for your brilliant question and your praise. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.